Welcome to the Theology of Work podcast. The Theology of Work project exists to provide a biblical perspective on faith and work. This episode features a talk Dr. Richard A. Swenson gave at a Marketplace Network Forum in Boston. Dr. Swenson is a physician researcher, best-selling author, and award-winning educator. He received his BS in physics from Denison University and his MD from the University of Illinois School of Medicine. Following five years of private practice, in 1982, Dr. Swenson accepted a teaching position as associate clinical professor within the University of Wisconsin Medical School System, where he taught for 15 years. As a physician researcher, his current focus is cultural medicine, studying the intersection of health, culture, faith, and the future. He has written extensively on trends in modern society, including the acceleration of stress, overload, change, complexity, and speed. Six of his books are dedicated to this general topic, and they contain hundreds of practical prescriptions for decompressing the increasing pressures of life. Dr. Swenson has traveled to over 50 countries, including a year of study in Europe and medical work in developing countries. He has presented widely, including national and international settings, to a wide variety of career, professional, educational, medical, governmental, and management groups. Most major church denominations, members of the United Nations, NASA, Congress, and the Pentagon. Here's Dr. Richard Swenson. Well, I collect signs of the times, and uh, if you run across a few, you send them my way. I want to give you just a couple here. This is a fraction of the ones I have in my briefcase. Uh, one is if you're a busy person, you can confess by fax machine. They have a new fax machine now that you confess the sins of less greed omission by fax machine. It's not sanctioned by the Vatican, but that's a sign of the times. Here's a 42-number phone call. You can use your Discover card and Sprint, and it says calling with your card is easy. All you have to do is dial Sprint's 11-digit access number, then zero, then your 16-digit Discover card account number, followed by a four-digit personal access code, and actually ready to dial the 10-digit number you're trying to reach. Here's another sign of the times, the five-day diaper. Have you seen that one? Uh, invented by... Let me give you a sample, Sue. Are you, are you out of that already? Five-day diaper, invented by a busy mother. Uh, she says, hey, babies don't care. I mean, this will save us a lot of time. They don't care. The only reason we change them is because we don't like it, and so this diaper goes up around the neck. and it's a It says uh, it'll save busy uh, mothers nine hours a week. Here's a doctor in North Carolina. This is one kind of sign of the times. I'm not sure. A very creative urologist. He has a two-for-one special with every vasectomy. He gives a coupon for a free oil change. <laughs> this is a sign of the times, I think, too. Another physician right here. Husband and wife, both physicians. He's a neurosurgeon. She's a psychiatrist. They both quit medicine to open a bagel shop. Uh, that's a sign of the times. Here's Wall Street Journal. Did you see this a couple years ago? The overloaded American. Too many things to do. Too little time to do them. Uh, that's another sign of the times. Where's the overload coming from? Is it real or is it a figment of our imagination? And let us look at this one, exhausted. You see this Newsweek uh, edition a couple years ago? That's Harvard University president there had to take an emergency three-month sabbatical. They talk about this epidemic of exhaustion in American society. They say we certainly didn't expect it. As a matter of fact, we expected the opposite. We expected that people were going to have so much leisure that boredom was going to be the problem, but instead, everybody is hitting the wall and collapsing at the same time. We don't know where this is coming from because we have more affluence and leisure devices and time-saving technologies and convenience than ever before in the history of the world. So where is this exhaustion coming from? They quote one mother of four from LaGrange, Illinois. She says, I'm so tired. My idea of a vacation is a trip to the dentist. 
I just can't wait to sit in that chair and relax. There's a futurist out of Milwaukee who says, we're hyper-living, we're skimming along on the surface of life. There's an editorialist who says, American culture is strapped to a rocket, the range and velocity of which we can't even begin to guess. So British thinker says, Americans are the people of the forward stampede. Max Lucado says, America is the only nation in the world with a mountain named Rushmore. You know, this has come as a real surprise because, in fact, this is what was predicted. Uh, in 1967, testimony for a Senate subcommittee that said by 1985, people would be working 22 hours a week or 27 weeks a year or retired age 38. Now, I was in high school and college in these days, and I remember this prediction. I remember it being said often. I don't know if you folks do or not, but it was a reasonable prediction in the 60s. See, this first part of our time together, we're going to look at diagnostics. What is going on in our culture? Is it something real, or is it a figment of our imagination? Is it something that we have to deal with or not? Why was this a reasonable prediction in 1967? Because of progress, because of technology, because of time-saving devices, labor-saving devices, Productivity would go up, wages are tied to productivity, wages would go up. One wage earner working 20 hours a week could buy a house and put the kids through college and pay doctor bills and save for retirement and all those things. The reality of the 90s is polar opposite. I mean, it could not be more polar opposite than this because we have men working about 48 or 49 hours per average and women at 41.7 hours, so you have the average husband and wife unit working 90 hours a week. So if the prediction was 20 hours a week, the reality is 90 hours a week, you gotta, you gotta do the math at some point. You gotta count for the, the 70 lost hours. I'm not making any kind of value judgments about anything. I'm only looking analytically and diagnostically at what is going on around us and whether this is a real phenomenon or not. And if it is, problem resolution always begins with correct problem identification. Now, for women, if you think that uh, you're tired and worn out, it is not a figment of your imagination. And the 41.7 hours that women work, when you add their domestic hours, it's 65 to 85 hours a week for women. So men is 48.8 hours, and it's 0.2 hours of domestic labor, so they get up to 49 hours after you add that. <laughs> My father is uh, famous for saying uh, it's all a figment of our imagination. Well, let me give you some uh, statistics that uh, kind of bear out my thesis. 30 million American men describe themselves as being stressed out. The average desk worker today has 36 hours of work piled on their desks and spends three hours a week shuffling piles trying to find the project that they're supposed to be working on next. In our lifetime, we spend uh, eight months opening junk mail in our lifetime. Some people do that every year, eight months a year. Uh, the average middle manager, the statistic I used to have was, is interrupted 73 times a day, but I saw on ABC News, Peter Jennings, it says now, a new study, and then I downloaded it off the internet. 169 messages per day that the average office worker is besieged by. Um, we spend one year of our lives searching through the clutter on our desks, looking for misplaced objects. Do you know how far the average misplaced object travels? <laughs> 10 inches. <laughs> so just draw a circle around that. We spend two years trying to call people who aren't in or whose line is busy. The average American today gets two and a half hours less sleep than 100 years ago. The average American today gets two and a half hours less sleep than 100 years ago. 70 million Americans have sleep disorder problems. Credit card delinquency is the highest level in 25 years. $450 billion of credit card debt. 
bankruptcies at the level. I mean, it is not a figment of your imagination, okay? I didn't come here to depress you, so uh, if you'll allow me my diagnosis so we can kind of move on to the next uh, part of the talk. Uh, let me put some uh, graphs up to show just how rapidly all of this has been changing. Now, these graphs in the back of the book, in the appendix of the book, I have about 35 exponential curves. And exponential curves are, you know, they start horizontal, then they go vertical. And Many of the processes uh, in our culture today uh, can be measured by exponentiality, and let's just look at a few. These are exactly as they appeared in the book in 1992, so I'll update a few of them, but we don't want to linger on these because there, there's too many of them. Gross federal debt, you know that now we're over five trillion. Bankruptcies, a, a million per year, over a million. Healthcare costs, this was $650 billion in the last year we hit a trillion. HICFA said just two days ago we're gonna hit two trillion by the year 2007. So the cost containment pressures on physicians, which are killing them. I mean, physicians are really hurting today under the conditions of very dramatic changes that are going on right now, and uh, that is not going to let up. You know the amount businesses paid for healthcare premiums increased for healthcare costs from 1948 to 1990. The amount businesses paid increased 15.6% per year on average. That is not sustainable. I mean, anybody could have looked at that and said, this is not sustainable. So it's an amazing time. It's just... Uh, a crazy and wild time. A couple others here. New books published. Were, it actually leveled off at 58,000 new titles per year. Okay, You can see a curve, first horizontal, then vertical, but the future is called at the turning point because nothing can go to infinity, right? So eventually things have to start leveling off, and that's called the turning point. With uh, new books, it's at 50 to 58,000 new titles per year because the carrying capacity of American society is not 5 trillion books a year. Every publisher go bankrupt if they try to put out 5 million uh, titles per year. Volume of junk mail did hit infinity last May, though. <laughs> Volume of advertising up to $200 billion now. Very, I mean, it, the curve has continued. Foreign travel, 10 million people per day cross international boundaries and, uh, across the world. 10 million today. JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association, and 32 other journals worldwide, two years ago, dedicated an entire edition to emerging infectious diseases. Because these bugs can climb inside the human host, the human host gets on an airplane, flies somewhere, the bugs don't check with the customs agents when they get off, and during that incubation period of time, they can carry these bugs to any part of the world. Well, just trust me that a lot of these graphs are exponential graphs, and I want to uh, then discuss how hard it is intuitively to figure out exponentiality when it's happening around us. If you were to take this piece of paper and fold it in half 40 times, how thick would that be? It'd go from here to the moon. Now, I doubt that your intuition told you that. I have a physics degree, and my, I wasn't close. I mean, the smartest people maybe say a mile, because they know I'm tricking them, and it's going to be pretty big. But a quarter of a million miles. Fold it in half another 40 times, go halfway across the Milky Way galaxy. Fold it in half another 20 times. Fold this paper in half 100 times, and go from here to the far wall of the universe, 18 billion light years out there. So I can fold this paper once every three seconds. So in five minutes, I can fold it 100 times. After my talk, we're going to go out in the plaza over here, and I'll, I'll give you a demonstration. That is just unbelievable, isn't it? The Pacific Ocean has 69 million square miles in it. Its average depth is 14,000 feet. Uh, if you put all the continents of the world in the Pacific Ocean, there'd still be room for another Asia. Okay, that's how big it is. Now take all the water out of the Pacific Ocean, start with one drop, and double the drop. 
If you double it 80 times, you fill the Pacific Ocean. These are the conditions that we're living under now. Things are changing just so unprecedented, so rapidly, and it's partly because we live on curves like that that people feel so overloaded and overwhelmed, and it is not a figment of our imagination. Now, what is causing this? Largely, it's the process of progress, and I don't say that to bash progress. If you're a defender of progress, so am I. And I don't want to go back before anesthesia and have my gallbladder out. Those were not fun times, and progress has given us tens of thousands of things that we ought to be grateful for and celebrate. But how does progress work? It basically works by differentiating our environment. If you were to take a tree log and you were to cut down a tree, bring it in here, say progress, differentiate this tree log, it'd make baseball bats and forks and fruit bowls and things out of that. Tree log's differentiating it. And then progress proliferates, everything is differentiated. And so as a result of that, it always gives us more and more of everything faster and faster. That is how progress works. And that's what we've asked progress to do. We shouldn't be mad at progress for doing that. And that's wonderful to get more and more of everything faster and faster, as long as that's what you need. But when you're already saturated, you see, the bottleneck in this whole thing is the established fact of human limits. There comes a point at which we can't tolerate more and more of everything faster and faster because we're already filled to overloading and kind of maxed out. Now, every year that goes by, progress will axiomatically lead to increasing stress, complexity, overload, change, speed, and marginlessness. And I'll look very quickly at this because this is still on the diagnostic side, and I definitely want to get to the therapeutics. What about stress? Is that a bad word? It's not a bad word. God invented the stress mechanism. It is only a word to describe the internal physiologic adaptation that all of us have to adapt to any kind of change that comes into our life or in our environment. And we do adapt. Every single thing it is. I mean, if a fly comes and lands on here, I have to adapt to that. If the door opens and somebody comes in or somebody goes out, that's a stress because then I have to adapt to that change in my environment. If you could have a no-stress world, would you want that? You would die. You literally would die. It would be fatal. You would not be able to tolerate it. How about a low-stress world? Low-stress versus high-stress. Which would you prefer of those two? The studies have been done. Most, most people prefer the high-stress. A lot of people in this room would want to answer that question for themselves. You know, they want to, they want to camp out in their low-stress territory for a while and see. But kids have a word for low-stress. What is the word that teenagers use? Boring, boring, you know, I hate that word, but we don't like boring either. It's just been 15 years since we've been there, so we don't remember what the experience is like. <laughs> but, so you don't want no stress, you don't want low stress, but if you have too much stress, that turns out to be toxic as well. And this is a curve that shows productivity versus stress. Now, what is your productivity when your stress is zero? Now, for stress, think about novelty and change and challenge in your life. I mean, that's kind of a word that you could use as a substitute for stress. When you have uh, none of that in your life, your productivity is zero. And I usually say, for example, if I'm writing an article, I write a lot, I've written several books and I write articles, and if I were to write that article like and start three weeks before the deadline, you know what? My productivity would be at maybe 3%, my efficiency meter. I mean, I just get almost nothing done. I just sit, sit there and stare at the wall. But if I wait until like midnight before the, the article is due, you see, I wait for the stress, I piggyback my efforts on top of this. I do it all the time. I do it intentionally because I know it works so dramatically well. I mean, it's just why in the world take three weeks to write an article when I can do it in three hours, you know, if I wait till the last <laughs> minute? Seriously, how many people here like to sort of wait for deadline pressures because you'll get more productive? Put your hand up if you like to do that, okay. How many people do not like that? 
Okay, usually it's about 50-50. Some people hate that, and so they really want to plan and be organized and do things in, in this kind of fashion. But look, there's a point at which too much stress, too much adaptation, overloads the system. It's uh, Alan Toffer's book, Future Shock, that's what he said, is the disease of the future is, is exactly this. And then all of a sudden your productivity starts to go down, not up. And that's where the fatigue and exhaustion and burnout come in. Now, if you're a manager in a workplace setting and you have employees under, you see, you, you, what you really want to do is keep people right up here. There is a creative tension that you need to cause to happen in the workplace if you want maximal uh, productivity. And that is this spot right here. If you push them over here, uh, your productivity is going to go down. There's a lot at stake in this graph, and we could take an hour and just look at it. But not only productivity would go down, but longevity goes down, morale goes down, creativity goes down. All of those things, would, really, we want those in the workplace, but if you push it too hard, and it isn't only the workplace that's pushing it, it's all of culture and all of life, so we need to kind of keep it over here. Let's look at the next area. Let's just skip down here to talk about change. There's been more change from 1900 to the present than in all recorded history before 1900. I have a talk I give on the future of medicine. It used to have 55 points in it, now it has 85 points in it. Uh, since 1980, 22 airlines with assets over $30 billion have gone bankrupt. I mean, it isn't just medicine. It isn't just the airline industry. It's every place you look. Change, and change is linked to stress. With every bit of change, there is stress that goes along with it. Let's look at uh, complexity. It's one of my favorite areas. Some things in life are simple, some are complex, but the curve is always shifting toward the complexity side. The average American has to learn how to operate 20,000 different pieces of technology and equipment. Three-fourths of them were designed to infuriate. MIT is probably responsible, I don't know. Whatever. I have a physics degree, and I don't know how to set my watch. You know, that's, in medicine, the PDR, it had, when it came out in 1948, it had 300 pages, now it has 3,000 pages. There's 80 antihypertensives. I don't learn the new ones. It's impossible to keep up with all the new pharmaceuticals. So complexity, uh, very interesting problem. Uh, let's look next at uh, speed. My question in, uh, in the speed area is, uh, is there a speed limit to life? Um, if there is a speed limit to life, then uh, what is it? And how do we know when we've hit it? I think there is a speed limit to life. And I think when you break the speed limit, God gives you a ticket. James Thurber says, man is flying too fast for a world that is round. Soon he will catch up with himself in a great rear-end collision. <laughs> There's a Purdue engineer. He wanted to uh, get his charcoal briquettes to catch fire faster. And so he decided to pipe in oxygen, pure oxygen, and it worked. It worked really good. So then he decided to try liquid oxygen and kind of using booster rockets. You know, he said, that really worked, too. It burned up the steaks, the briquettes, and the grill in three seconds. <laughs> says it was really bright. You didn't want to look at it. Henry Blackaby, H.B. London, now uh, that uh, folks on the family called Henry Blackaby, was doing an interview. And H.B. London says, um, you know, how do you manage all of this and all the things that you're balancing and juggling in life? And this is what Henry Blackaby said, I spent my whole life hurrying God. I was running around doing all these things and God had to fit into it all. And then one day God said to me, Henry, you're not going to hurry me anymore. You are going to have to fit into my schedule. And Blackaby says that changed my entire life. Interesting, isn't it? I know when I'm going too fast. I know intuitively when I'm going too fast. Let's look at overload. Do you have a theology and a philosophy and psychology of overload, of human limits? Do we have limits? 
Yes. Where did they come from? Is it sort of a cosmic accident? Did it come at the fall? Is it part of the penalty of the fall? Or did God design them in? God put them in us. And I think he didn't want competition for the job of being God. He's, uh, he's the unlimited one, and he does a pretty good job, and we are the ones that have limits. As we look at these limits, this is something that high-performing people really don't want to look at very often in our lives. I mean, in medicine, we're all, all driven, and so you always want to kind of keep pushing things and maximizing things, but you pretend that there's no sort of far edge, you know, which represents a cliff or something, and it really is out there. And so it's, uh, it behooves us to take a look at it for, for just a little while. If I were to draw a line here, and this line represents the 100% uh, limit. Now, some people will say, well, how do you know when you're at 100%? How do you know when you're maxed out and you can't fit anything more in? That's a very good question, very difficult to answer. Because for some people, it might be irritability. For some people, it might be apathy or withdrawal. For some people, maybe you start making a lot of mistakes. So you get a lot of speeding tickets. So you start drinking too much. I mean, there's, there's little indicators that different people have. And I think kind of know what uh, your signs are and then sort of pay attention to that. If you're over here at 80%, which is basically the idea of margin, having some space in your life. You know, people used to have space in their life. That's a lot of the nostalgia we have is because people had a little bit of margin in their days to recharge their batteries. People used to sleep full nights. There wasn't all of the sort of interruptive devices that we have now. People used to take weekends off. People definitely took Sundays off. And there was not the technology that sort of makes us on call for the universe. So that, yes, people worked very hard. People worked often 60 hours a week. And I'm not denying that at all. Life was tough, but people had a little bit of margin that could be relational. If you're at 80% and your coworker comes to you and says, could you uh, work for me this weekend? You know, I'm supposed to be on call. And would you carry my beeper because my sister-in-law is sick and I've got to go to Connecticut for the surgery? And you say, sure, I'll do that. I like you and I like the job and I hope everything's okay. You get to 100% and your coworker comes and says, uh, my sister-in-law is sick and I think it's going to be a tough case and uh, I have to go to the surgery. Would you, uh, would you come and, and, and take my call for me this weekend? And you say, um, I, I think I, I maybe can. I sure hope I can. I have to look at my calendar. I, I know that uh, our plate is pretty full this weekend, so I better check with the family. But I, I'll tell you what, okay, I'll do it. I think I can squeeze it in, and we'll make it work this time. So there's this also this hesitancy and this ambivalence. You get to 120% or 130%, your coworker says, uh, if you take my shift this uh, weekend, you say, I quit. I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm finished. People dump their problems on me at the last minute all the time. I have to bail everybody in this company out, and I'm just finished. I'm out of here. Now, the reaction there was not because of what was asked of you. It was the reaction came from where you were with regard to the issue of human limits. And you need to understand that when you're a physician and you're over here at 140%, you're sicker than your patients. And so your patients' illnesses represent a threat to your own vitality. You tell your patients, I don't care if your ulcer is dealing, go home and deal with it. I mean, I'm sicker than you. Don't you care about me? How about pastors that go to seminary so they can help people with their problems, but they are so incredibly overloaded that every new person that comes in with another people problem is instead a tremendous burden. So I've looked at overload here in my new book in all of these different categories. We just don't have the time to go into them. There's, uh, there's lots of illustrations to show that we're ubiquitously overloaded in, in so many uh, areas of life. So that list, that this list is not self-correcting. If you don't want to do anything about it right now, that's fine with me. But I would suggest you start making some plans for 
for accommodating to this because when you live in the land of saturation, the rules of the game totally change. If you have your glass full of water, you can't put another drop of water in until you take a drop of water out. How do we add margin back into our days? Let's take a look at uh, some ways we can do that. The first, I focus on four different ways to add margin back in. And again, the margin is the space between our load and our limits. I look at margin in time, margin in emotional energy, margin in physical energy, and margin in finances. So let's look at time here first. Here's some suggestions. There's a total of 75 prescriptions in the book. Maybe people can only do two. Don't make any sudden changes. I mean, think it through and then start making baby steps. I mean, if you want to, I don't care. I mean, I'm not telling anybody how to order their life. Believe me, I'm, not. I'm just putting the issues on the table and giving pr people permission to consider this. Um, the first thing uh, is to expect the unexpected. They had a saying in Ecuador, everything takes longer than it does. And that's a brilliant saying, because it's true. We live in a fallen world, and things are going to go wrong. And you're going to you know, not be able to find a clean tie, or you can't find your left shoe, or there's a traffic jam out there, or the person doesn't show up on time, or uh, something. You know. And so if you plan your day, if you plan your day in such a way that there's no space or gap in between any of the activities you have planned for that day, and it's a perfect day, then you pat yourself on the back and you're really pretty proud, I mean, how things went. But what happens if it is an imperfect day and fallenness manifested itself somewhere in the middle of the day and an imperfection comes up and what happens to the rest of the day? Doesn't it start to unravel? Doesn't that happen to you? I mean, it clearly happens to me. And then I start hurrying, and with you, when you hurry, you start making mistakes. And so I get more and more flustered and start perspiring and get upset. And this is true for many of us. So expect the unexpected. It's the same reason, why would you drive 70 miles an hour on the interstate and leave two inches between you and the car in front of you? I notice people do that here in Boston, right downtown. But, um, you just don't know what's going to happen with the car in front of you, so expect the unexpected. Learn to say no is the next one. We'll only take, we'll take five or six of these here. Learn to say no. If you've seen the flow of progress and what's going to happen and the escalation every year it's increasing, you'll realize that there'll only be more and more opportunities and committees and obligations and so on that will come up in the future. But we, we still are stuck with that 24-hour period of time and a finite amount of human energy. So you can only say yes to a certain number of things. So we have to become more and more comfortable saying no to things. That's just a mathematical uh, sort of simple analysis. It is easy to say no to bad things. It's easy to say no to a flexible sigmoidoscopy or a root canal or something like that, IRS audit. But it is hard to say no to good things, fun things, things you always want to do. But if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. Stephen Jobs, when he took back over to Apple, he says, focusing doesn't mean saying yes. Focusing means saying no. We've got to focus our company down. And that means you have to sort of get rid of a lot of other things and say no to a lot of other things. Uh, how about turning off the television set? Anybody here not have a set? Usually there's about one in a hundred, but anybody here not have a set? Okay, one, two, good. How about that? Interesting, three? Interesting. Wow, that's... I don't think there was anybody yesterday. We have a set, and I've not yet got to the point of saying everybody should throw their set away, but probably the wisest people in America are those that don't have television sets. 230 billion hours a year in America. 230 billion hours a year watching television. Now, what did we do with that time before television took those hours up? Is it possible that we lingered at the dinner table, that we helped the kids with homework, that we slept full nights, that we went for a walk, that we read a great novel, 
that we visited with the neighbors or dug in the garden or something like that. Is that, is that just uh, romanticized nonsense or is that possible that that was the functional replacement for uh, the 230 billion hours? Now, uh, Gary Larson of Farside says uh, this is what it was the days before television. <laughs> What happened to Gary Larson three years ago? <laughs> Burned out, quit. I mean, he's just simple fatigue, age 44. The person who single-handedly kept the entire nation psychiatrically compensated was taken away from us, and I think we're in big trouble. Uh, let's look at uh, number five, practice simplicity and contentment. Now, how much you want to do this is totally up to you. There's a lot of latitude here. I'm just sort of suggesting to people, the more margin you want, the more you probably have to practice some simplicity and contentment. And Linda and I do quite a bit. Kiplinger's personal finance, how to simplify your life. I mean, you see best-selling books all over the place on, uh, on this particular theme. One of the simple things that I'll mention for Linda and I, we've done some things fairly radically and some things not, but when I go to the clinic, I'd wear brown pants or blue pants, and I'd either wear a blue shirt or white shirt. And I just get dressed in the dark. I mean, it was very easy. I didn't have to take a lot of time making decisions. I didn't wear a coat or tie. Patients didn't mind it because they just like you to be dressed neatly. You didn't have to be dressed real fancy, but just neatly. And so I did that for about 10 years, and it really worked out well. It was just a simplicity kind of move. So, I mean, everything that you own owns you. And everything that you own, you have to use it and dust it, maintain it, and paint it, and build space in your house to put it. And then you have to uh, play with it, and you have to pay, work to pay it off. And if things take time, and time's what we're trying to get, that may, then sometimes fewer things mean that you're going to have more time. That isn't always true. I mean, a dishwasher will, will save you some time. I think there's no question. How about separate time from technology? This is uh, probably going to be a provocative one in this particular crowd, but let's go for it. Uh, the best thing to remember about time-saving technologies is they don't. They compress time, consume time, and devour time. And all the people in the world that have the most time-saving technologies are the most hairy people you'd want to see. It's a one-to-one -one relationship. Now, I'm not saying throw them all over a cliff, but you better be discerning about them. Let's take a look at them one at a time. I don't like telephones, personally, because as a physician, every time the telephone rings, it's bad news. I mean, somebody wants a piece of me. So I like email. It's a guy's stationary. You know, you don't have to look for a stamp or an address. Or and I like email, and I, and I do a lot of things with email. Well, I can answer it at my leisure. A telephone, you have to answer right now, no matter what it is you're doing. You have, but with, uh, with email, I can answer at 3 o'clock in the morning, two days from now, if I want to do that. But I heard about a guy who came back after vacation, he had a thousand email messages. Now maybe somebody in this room has had this. There's another editorialist who wrote recently, 250 per day. And if you looked at the flow of what I was talking about, that's the world that's facing all of us. That is the world that is coming. And so there'll come a day where I won't like email anymore. How many people here don't like email? Has anybody gotten to that point? Okay, yeah. How many people do? Okay, well, so far. Now if we met again in five years, I can guarantee you that would be inverted. I mean, it's exactly the opposite. How about the pagers? Pagers uh, sort of make you on call for the universe, and uh, again, physicians have a love-hate relationship, but there's a new word for uh, the startle reaction that when the pager goes off, it's called beepalepsy. You know, that, start with, uh, that adrenaline surge. <laughs> My pager died, and one of the residents gave me his pager. He, he was gleefully graduating from a residency program, and he threw me his pager. You know what the number on it was? 666, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, I'm gonna get rid of this, but then I thought it might be God's sense of humor, and I didn't get rid of it, but anyway. Uh, how about uh, cell phones? And sure, one is going to go off here. I was watching Jim Lehrer News Hour, and a guy's cell phone went off in the middle of the program. And 50 million in America, and they can accomplish uh, a lot of good things and be tremendously convenient. There's no question about it. But 
The secretary that worked in my last book, uh, when her father was dying just uh, in like May in Indiana Hospital, the pastor was at the bedside praying in the middle of the prayer and a cell phone went off. They stopped the prayer and answered the cell phone. And think it through. I mean, isn't it true that because of these technologies, these accessing technologies, actually we, ha we have accessibility overload? And we need some disconnect points. You need some disconnect points for margin to recharge your batteries and nourish your relationships so that you can get strong so that when you go back into the fray next time, you'll have something to give to it. This is my favorite Christmas present. I got a phoneless cord for Christmas this last year. <laughs> Wall Street Journal, you're always connected to the office. The good news is you're always connected to the office. The bad news is you're always connected to the office. Uh, here's a doctor in Milwaukee. He says, I'm dying of easy accessibility. He says, telephones in our homes and offices, cordless phones in our backyards and cars, beepers, fax machine, email, it's enough to give you a stroke. I swear if Alexander Green Bell walked into my office, I'd punch him in the nose. <laughs> if he called, you could be sure I'd put him on hold. <laughs> Hello, this is Hiram Budlong. I'm not in right now, so wait for the beep and hang up. <laughs> Let's, uh, let's, go, let's drop on down. I, I want to just talk uh, real briefly about be available and we'll go on to emotional energy. Um, part of the reason that I'm talking about uh, having some margin is because when God taps us on the shoulder and asks us to do something for him, we need to have some interruptibility and availability for those purposes. And we get so busy I think God could use a two-by-four. He could use a sledgehammer. We wouldn't have a clue that he's actually talking to him. He gets a busy signal from us all the time. And you remember the, the story about the person who came to Jesus and asked about what's the greatest commandment. Out of 630 commandments of the Old Testament, which is the greatest one? And Jesus said, well, the Shema, thou shalt love the Lord God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is like unto the first, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then what was the follow-up question? Who's my neighbor? What's, what was the illustration that followed? The Good Samaritan. Jesus said, the person who's the neighbor, the person who loved, the person who fulfilled the great commandment is the one that interrupted his schedule. And ministry for Jesus was the person standing in front of him at the time. I mean, that's the way he did life. He, and then when he was done with that one, then he went on to the next one, and then he went on to the next one. But the person standing in front of me is always an obstacle. I'm trying to get over, under, or under, through, even if God himself has put this person in front of me for ministry opportunity. So there's something really serious at stake here that I'm afraid that we're bypassing and missing some of the greatest blessings of life as a result of this. Irma Bombeck, I don't know where this was with her cancer uh, story, but uh, she was turned over to Rose's parade marshal and really exhausted, and a taxi driver talked incessantly all the way back to the airport, and she had three phone calls which were exhausting, and uh, finally she was just so tired. She was so tired. She went to the airport bookstore, she got a novel, just any, any novel, you know, click the first one, just was reading it like this. She didn't want anybody to talk to her on the plane. So she gets on the plane and this little old lady sits next to her. And instantly just like, going to Chicago, huh? And everyone says, yeah. Probably cold in Chicago this time of year. Well, you know, it's January 1st, likely. My son lives there, I haven't seen him for three years. That's nice. My husband's body is on this plane. We were married 42 years. I don't drive, so the funeral director had to give me a ride to the airport. And Irma says, I never detested myself as much as I did at that moment. How do we know God doesn't do that to us all the time? If there aren't people, maybe your job today 
one thing, one thing, not a hundred million things, one thing will we ever see it if we don't have the interruptibility. Um, let's go on to margin in uh, energy. The thesis behind this, in emotional energy, the thesis behind this is that we all uh, start the day with only a certain quantum of emotional vitality. As we're going through the day, um, we're making uh, withdrawals from that quantum of emotional vitality and also we're making deposits back in, okay? It's like a gas tank or something. Well, it was, it was like a bank account. And as, you're, as you get up and uh, the first withdrawal is when you look in the mirror, maybe, I don't know. Then, then you go and you try and get in the car and the car won't start. You know, and your alarm over, you, you overslept and, and you can't, you forgot your wallet, you forgot your credit card, your credit card won't take on the, you know, this magnetic strip and there's a traffic jam. And, and, uh, you know, you get to work and there's a 36 hours of work pile on your desk. So, you know, you're depleting. But at the same time, maybe you see a beautiful sunrise and on the radio you hear your favorite song and you hear a joke. Somebody tells you a great joke and you just laugh and for five minutes you get to work and there's that colleague that you just love working next to. And so you're receiving back in. So you see all day long, down, up, down, up, this dynamic flux that takes place all, all the time. Well, none of us has, starts the day with an infinite quantum of emotional energy. I mean, we all have a certain amount. I can't objectify it. But how can we build that up faster and we drain it down? That's what I'm talking about. We thought progress would do that. Progress doesn't do that. Okay, it's very, very clear right now that progress doesn't do that. Uh, every physician can tell you about how full their schedule is with regard to issues like this. So here's some suggestions. Uh, one, cultivate social supports. You know what that means? It means have good friends. God's intention from the beginning was that friendships and, and the, the presence of other people was supposed to be the greatest blessing of life. Instead, it seems like part of the penalty of the curse, doesn't know the fall. Um, if you are really hurting and you can go to somebody and tell them about your pain, even if they don't care, number one, and they don't know how to fix it, number two, it still helps you. It's called a disclosure effect. Just the fact that you can get it out. Okay, now, even let's take a second scenario. They don't know how to fix your pain, but they care. That's called empathy. That works too. And so when you stuff these things inside of yourself all the time and you have nobody to go to and talk to about these things, there will be a toxicity inside of us that will build up. The studies are very clear on this. All the research has been done. And people that have intact nurturing social support systems are healthier people. Very clear uh, studies. Now, Linda is much more relational than I am. Uh, first of all, females are. Females talk about 25,000 words a day and men 10,000 words a day. There's the one time I said, before we talk, could I say something? You know? But anyway, um, she's a great gal. <laughs> she's going to beat me up afterwards. I actually, I'm an introvert and she's an extrovert. So I like traveling with her because I'll have her come in the room first, you know, and she'll just sort of talk to everybody and take care of all my needs. And I can just slink in around and sit down in my chair. But if Linda died tomorrow, she'd have 10,000 people come to her funeral. If I die, they wouldn't find six pallbearers to wheel my casting. It's very hard for me to be relational because I'm an introvert and because I'm a male. If males in Wisconsin didn't have deer hunting in the Packers, and we have no reason to talk to each other. <laughs> but does that mean that we're given an exemption from this? We're not given any exemption. Just because we're males, just because you're an introvert, we have to work at this whole area of relationships. But the marginalist lifestyle is toxic to relationships. Who has time to invest? Where's the energy, really, to reach out and invest in other people? We need to do that. Uh, pet a surrogate. Animals help. Do you know that? It's measurable. I heard of a life insurance company gives 8% off on life insurance policies if you're a pet owner. Because it's measurable. 57% of pet owners would rather take their pet to a desert island rather than another human being. 
They don't bite the way humans do. Um, let's look at um, rest. Do you know that there were times when um, Jesus was very exhausted and he told his disciples to get in a boat and go out to the middle of the sea? Do you remember that? Surrounded by crowds of people, lots of ministry opportunity left. But he said, let's get in a boat and go out in the middle of the lake. You know, you don't have to have more compassion on the Almighty. If Jesus did that, it is okay for us to do that from time to time because he wants you to finish the race strong. And you're not going to finish the race strong if you try to be all things to all people all the time all by yourself by midnight tonight. He didn't design us that way. He didn't design it. We're not supposed to carry the burdens of the world. But the person standing in front of it, you are. You're supposed to love that person and bring the kingdom of God to bear. Remember in Matthew 11, that wonderful passage where Jesus reached out his hands and says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you one more thing to do. Remember that wonderful passage? <laughs> How about laughter? Do you know what the peak age of laughter is? God gave us a special gift, two special gifts, laughter and music. If God had neglected to invent those two things, we would not be sitting here postulating that God forgot something. We would just be absent those two things. And we would think how poor we would be as a result. But I think he knew life was going to be tough. And so he said, I'm going to sort of, you know, God's creativity is just unbelievable. It's so brilliant. And so he decided he was going to create this thing called laughter and this thing called music. I don't have music on this list, but 75% of Americans use music to de-stress it. It should be on this list. But laughter, um, do you know what the peak age of laughter is? Four years old. Four-year-olds laugh once every four minutes or 400 times a day. <laughs> now, how about adults? How often do we laugh? 17 times a day. I'm 50 years old. 17 times a day. Now, 400 times a day down to 17 times a day. What happened? We had kids. That took care of 200 laughs right there. <laughs> but we know that laughter is therapeutic. We don't know all of the physiologic processes that are involved in this. But the people who laugh readily heal faster. That's very clear. Norman Cousins wrote a book about it, Anatomy of an Illness, if you read that. There's lots of illustrations I could give. University of Louisville Medical School psychiatrist recommends a half an hour of therapeutic laughter every day. But the marginalist lifestyle is toxic, so we need to laugh and feel good about it. Let your nose drip and make a fool out of yourself. There will be a feeling of euphoria that'll come after that kind of laughter, which lasts long after the laughter has ceased. And uh, uh, we know that there's positive effects on the cardiovascular system and on the immune system. One uh, laughter consultant calls, uh, calls laughter a cranial enema. <laughs> Number eight, uh, appropriate boundaries. Now, you see, I talk about two things at the same time. I talk about um, uh, saying no and limits and uh, boundaries, and then I talk about saying yes. And I think we have to understand both dimensions of that. So boundaries is the notion about erecting a perimeter around the private spaces of your life, even, even the public and professional spaces of your life, and uh, not letting the world come crashing through that perimeter at any old time. For example, let me give you some illustrations. There are times when we're home by ourselves, I simply don't answer the phone. Uh, if I'm home by myself, uh, probably 80% of the time, every time it rings, somebody wants me to come speak. My schedule's full. I mean, why do I want to talk to them for half an hour and say, I'm sorry, I can't come? You know, so... I, you might say this is kind of irritating for the person trying to reach me, but I know I have personal needs, and I have, to make, I have to attend to those needs. I do not feel guilty about it, because I know I give myself to the things of God. And I know I give myself to the things of God to the point of exhaustion. I am an introvert. Introverts you know, aren't necessarily boring. People are surprised. Everybody thinks introverts are boring. You know, but they're drained by social interchange is what it is. And so you guys are wonderful people, but I have to go and recover from you for like a week after I talk to you. <laughs> 
So I don't answer the phone. Sometimes I don't answer the doorbell. And uh, that's appropriate use of boundaries, I think. Uh, I had a patient call me at 4 o'clock in the morning. He said, would you renew my Valium prescription? Well, that's a boundary violation. I had a patient call me at 4 o'clock in the morning and said, uh, do you operate a rhetorical question? Do you operate on bleeding hemorrhoids? I said, what's with a chainsaw? Be right over. What's your dress? <laughs> you know, I didn't say that, but if I had thought about that, I would have said that. Uh, this guy, because those are boundary violations. Those are the things that will kill your physician faster than anything else. This guy understands boundaries really pretty well. No, Thursday's out. How about never? Is never good for you? You know, there's a couple other things I'd like to touch on. Um, be rich in faith. Dr. David Larson uh, is a psychiatrist. He worked with the National Institute of Health, and all the other psychiatrists around him treated faith as a negative mental health factor. And he says, I don't think so. Of course, he had a research bias because he was a person of faith, but he says, I don't think it's pathological to be a person of faith. So he started doing studies to uh, see what he would find, and he expected to find that faith that was, in fact, neutral and not negative. In fact, it always came back positive. Everything he looked at it came back positive. Two things were neutral. Nothing was negative. So he started writing this up. Many other doctors have done it as well. You will read these articles in Time. You'll read them in Reader's Digest. you read them sort of all over the place. The link between faith and health, it's established. It's research proven now. Uh, John Templeton gave uh, David Larson a, a quite a large check and said, would you start an institute and study this? And so David Larson has now five different books. I can go to any secular group of physicians anywhere in the United States and talk about the research proven link between faith and health. And that's a profound thing. 90% of the indices that determine whether we're well or ill don't have anything to do with doctors, hospitals, or pharmaceuticals. So we're paying a trillion dollars for that 10%. A lot of what I'm doing right now is talking about the 90% from the pre-morbid state to people so people could maintain healthy, vigorous lives and good relationships and um, an upright faith. Dartmouth University has an ongoing study looking at number one and number 12 for men that had open-heart surgery. They look at men that have, uh, number one, nourishing relationships, and number 12, a meaningful faith. And so far, the studies, uh, the numbers are fairly small. It was like 260 patients so far, so those numbers are really pretty small. But so far, the men that had meaningful nurturing relationships and a meaningful faith had 14 times less complication after their open heart surgery. I mean, that is so powerful, it just blows you away. I think that's as powerful as like cigarette smoking and diabetes combined or something. Uh, let's look at a couple other uh, areas. Let's look at margin of physical energy. In, in physical energy, the reason that progress has not necessarily been kind to us, it has been kind to us in many areas in terms of health, hasn't it? There's no question our technology, our medications are just unsurpassed, and it's a wonderful thing. Most of the uh, increase in longevity, though, comes from public health measures. I mean, from immunizations and good food and flush toilets and things like that. The three areas I'm concerned about in, in margin and physical energy has, have to do with sleep, nutrition, and exercise. And the area of, um, that I'm concerned about with sleep, I already mentioned in 1850, people slept nine and a half hours a night. Now, I'm not saying nine and a half hours a night is what everybody should strive for. I'm just saying there is a difference today compared to past days and past years. Most people in the world, for the history of the world, have slept uh, nine and a half, ten hours a night. Um, and then one invention came on the scene. Do you know what it was? The light bulb, the light bulb. The light bulb was invented, electricity, and then the light bulb invaded the night. And, uh, and by 1950, people got eight hours a night. Now people got seven hours a night. It's still going down. 
Uh, 70 million Americans talk about sleep disorder problems. 47% of workers say they have trouble with sleep. Two-thirds of those workers say that their, their sleep problems affect their, uh, the quality of their job performance. So this is a huge issue. They say as many people are killed on the streets from drowsy drivers as from drunk drivers. Uh, and progress has been responsible for a lot of that. How about nutrition? Uh, we have an abundant supply of inexpensive, safe, nutritious food. That's a wonderful blessing, and I'm not discounting that at all. But we have the affluence that permits us to eat too much. At the time of the Revolutionary War, 92% of Americans are living on a farm. And now 2% do, and the rest of us sit behind desks, and we push pencils, and as we sit, we thicken. And uh, only about 22% of Americans get enough exercise. So let's look at just uh, some, quickly, a couple suggestions that we could uh, have in terms of uh, physical energy. One is to uh, value sleep. Sleep an enemy? You should answer the question inside of yourself. A lot of people think that sleep is a waste of time and an enemy. I think it was God's idea. I think God built it in. He knew what he was doing. He had a reason for building it in. Every night when my head hits the pillow, I'm glad we're not nonstop people. I think he could have made us with not such a thing as sleep, and we just sort of keep going, 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 going forever. And fish don't sleep, they don't have eyelids. They go to the bottom of the lake and stare at a rock all night. And we could have, we could have been like that. Giraffes sleep five minutes a night. Um, so I value sleep. Um, develop healthy sleep uh, habits. Let me give you a couple suggestions here. I believe in a simple living, but if you spend more for your mattress than you do your car, it's a good investment. Don't cheat on your mattress. Have a good mattress, you're going to spend a third of your life there. Uh, don't have disturbing conversations immediately before bedtime. I mean, we're talking about healthy sleep habits, okay? Uh, like the time Linda told me, you better have a good night's sleep tonight because there's something we have to talk about in the morning. <laughs> She's really a sweet person. <laughs> caffeine. Uh, if you have trouble with sleep, uh, be careful of caffeine. I'm not an anti-caffeine person, but if uh, it, it can cause headaches and it can cause sleep uh, disorder problems. So if you have trouble with sleeping, don't have caffeine after about 12 o'clock noon. Um, I don't know if you've seen this one. How many times have I told you no coffee after September? <laughs> Take a nap. Number eight, every uh, process in the human body uh, undergoes a diurnal variation. It, it, uh, the, our physiology, every, every hormone secretion, every cardiovascular parameter, our temperature, it phases throughout the day. There is a natural slump after, after lunch, mid-afternoon, and I'm, I always hope I don't get assigned to talk to people about 2 o'clock because it is a very difficult time. And when people fall asleep, like in church or in meetings or something like that, it's usually those are people that are sleep-deprived. I mean, one out of three people in this room are sleep-deprived, and so people fall asleep. You know, that's usually an indication of it. So uh, if, you can't, if you have the opportunity to take a nap, go for it. Uh, a nap of longer than an hour is not necessarily more restful, but it's part of the way God wired us. And I don't feel guilty if I get an opportunity to nap. I often don't, but if I have an opportunity, I certainly will, will use it. I'll be much more productive the rest of the day. There's no question about it. How about nutrition? Uh, decrease the intake of fat. 90, it used to be that 40% uh, of our calories came from fat, and then we got down to 37, then 34. We're trying to shoot for 30. And that's because fat is calorie dense. It has twice as many calories as protein or carbohydrate do. So, but why do we eat as, as much fat as we do? Because it tastes great, tastes great. Prime rib, gravy, donuts, I mean, all of those things. So one doctor had a good idea. He says, uh, if it tastes good, spit it out. That's probably a good suggestion for a good, uh, effective diet. Now, this is part of the difficulty that we have, I think. Um, it's not just gender, but it's a diet salad. This isn't food. This is what food eats. 
inner city children, inner city children 30 years ago had a better diet than rich suburban men do today. You think about that. Isn't that fascinating? How about this one down here, mixed stay at home? Who has, time to, uh, who has time to cook? Everybody's so incredibly busy that nobody does have time to cook. So 57% of Americans buy and consume food outside the home on a daily basis. And what do you choose when you're eating out like that? You don't choose tofu and shredded wheat and cardboard. You know, you choose things that have fat and calories and cholesterol and salt and things that aren't healthy because it tastes good. And so for a lot of us, the sole difference between good nutrition and bad nutrition is the amount that we eat out. In terms of exercise, 100% um, of people that exercise to the point of cardiorespiratory fitness will report an increased sense of well-being. 100% of people. There are very few things in life that will deliver at the 100% level. But if you exercise 30 to 45 minutes a day, three to four times a week, it often takes as long as a couple months, you'll say, I not only feel better, I have more durability, I sleep better at night, my attitude is better, my productivity is better, I mean, every part of my life is better. And uh, so that's a very interesting percentage. But who has time really to exercise like that? And who likes to sweat? And who likes to buy all that equipment and then show up to that gym and look at those bodies and then look at your body? And so uh, there's a lot of counter incentives. Only 22% of Americans get enough exercise. Um, the the uh, recently appointed uh, Surgeon General, uh, his exercise is gardening. Every day he gardens. And uh, that counts. I mean, you can just have walks. That counts. But let's just finish up. I'll, I'll talk in terms of margin and finances. Um, I don't know how much of a problem it is here, but I have found that no matter where you go on the socioeconomic ladder, people have difficulties in this area. I don't, there obviously isn't time. I have just a couple minutes. And I just want to tell you one story in closing that kind of ties everything I've been talking about together. It comes from uh, Tolstoy. Um, perhaps you've read it uh, back in your high school or college days, but in War and Peace, Napoleon was marching on Moscow. It's toward the end of the book. He's going to take Moscow in a couple of days. The people in Moscow are busy uh, getting all of their possessions, and they're putting them on carts so that they can escape out the other end of town so that when uh, Napoleon comes in, he doesn't get their stuff. And uh, there's one particularly wealthy count. He has a mansion, and he has a big cart in the middle of the mansion, I mean a big courtyard in the middle of the mansion, and he has 30 carts there. And the servants have all the stuff, just about finished, getting it all packed on top of these carts and roped down. And these carts are going for, I mean, a million dollars a cart. I mean, that's exaggerated, but people just want carts, and, and the count's not going to sell any of his uh, carts. But also throughout Moscow are wounded soldiers laying around on the roads. Every road has wounded soldiers. Every, even the courtyard has wounded soldiers laying there. Now, what is uh, Napoleon going to do when he comes into town two days from now? By the way, they burned Moscow. The Russians burned Moscow before they, before they went out the other end. And Napoleon came into town, but there wasn't you know, much there. The first thing he would do is he would take these wounded soldiers, and he'd kill some, and he'd put the rest in concentration camps where they would later die. And everybody knew and understood that that is the way you did war in 1812. But the count had a daughter. And the daughter, all of a sudden, saw it. And she started crying. And she ran up to her father and she said, Father, we have to put the people on the carts. And we have two boys. We don't have any, we don't have any daughters. We had, we had wished that God had given us a girl. But, so I can't tell you for sure how I'd respond, but I think if my daughter had done that to me, I would have felt a little bit of shame, but I think I also, I think my heart would have exploded just in pride that my daughter would be that sensitive and that right. And the father... Uh, hugs his daughter and says, the eggs are teaching the chickens. 
And then he goes downstairs. He, he changes his mind about his stuff. And he goes downstairs. He was going to send his daughter, but he knew that the servants would be so aghast at this order that they would never follow it from the daughter. So he goes downstairs and he says, take all the things off and put the people on. And the servants, there's a, there's a wonderful line there that gives me hope for our future. It says, the servants who one minute before were doing the most natural thing in the world, in terms of putting all of the stuff on the carts, we're now doing the most natural thing in the world. The only thing that could be done, taking it all off and putting the people on. And I think about margin, and I think about life, and I think about clutter, and I think about our day-to-day. -day. You know, margin is not a threshold that you arrive and have it solved for the rest of your life. I mean, we fight this battle all day long, every day of our lives, and our carts have clutter on them, and it's just a nonstop activity trying to clear space so that we can put people on there. Think about your lives and think deeply about life is only a vapor. It just goes like that. That's the scripture says. I argue with God. I said, God, I'm a doctor. It's 70 years, 80 years. He said, no, it's a vapor. And a vapor is not too long to hang on and do the right thing. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Richard Swenson speaking at a Marketplace Network Forum in Boston. For more information, visit our home on the web, theologyofwork.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at TheoWorkProject. Project.